We are now engaged in a study on the Father Seeks True Worshippers. Today, we want to focus our attention on what does that hour bring. It's one thing to be invited to be a true worshiper by the Lord, like the woman at the well did, the Samaritan. But we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, what does our God require? Or what will that hour bring? And of course, let's give our attention first. First off, straight out of the gate, let's give our attention to the Word today. And let's stand and stretch one more time and read the Word together. We're going to begin in verse 16, excuse me, verse 15, and not in verse 1, but John chapter 4. I'm going to assume that all of you that came last week will remember the narrative. And if you didn't come last week, shame on you. No, kidding you. Uh, We hope you're familiar with John chapter 4. Beginning in verse 15, the word says, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming... Here's the focal text for this morning. And now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Can you pick out what that hour will bring? Spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. To God be the glory. May He bless the reading of His word. You may be seated. Did you ever, by chance, play church when you were a child? Let me show you a picture here of my kids playing church. This is Merritt, and he's bringing it. I mean, he is shucking the corn, and the audience is probably Elena, myself, and Natalie, and Timothy. All right, keep going. Yep, that's both the little preacher boys. They're up in the morning. Now, look, this wasn't church day. They just got up that morning. And they had it in their mind. They had been to church their whole lives, you know, since they were carried in the womb to church, right? And then uh, there they are. I don't know what that... That's probably Brother David leading music, right? I'm not sure about that, but... And then, of course, we've got Timothy. He wants to get his part in there to, to preach the Word as well. Now, I'll show you that. It's kind of funny. But also, I want you to think about it. We come into this building, and we're around the church all of our lives, most of us. We know the books of the Bible. We know when to clap. We know when to smile. We know when to say amen. We even know at times how to cry big crocodile tears. And some of you may even know how to greet one another with a holy kiss. But if you do, men, stay away from me. All right? Um, In certain societies, I will greet my brethren overseas with a holy kiss, but not you. All right? We know how 
to give a testimony. We know how to pray out loud. We know how to stand, know how to kneel, know how to sit quietly. We even know how to receive the bread and the cup, how to hold it, how to wait until the pastor says uh, Mark 14 or 1 Corinthians 11 when we partake of those things. We know how to do these things. We know how to follow in believers' baptism and to dedicate our children. Names like Dobson and Swindoll and Stanley and Piper and Jeremiah, those are names. Wearsby, we're familiar with the lingo around the church. We even know some songs like, How Great Thou Art. We know those songs. We know holy, holy, holy. We know the trebling of those words. We know the song, Every Day with Jesus. It's easier than the day before. You know that's a lie, right? Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. We know have thine own way, and he is Lord. And of course, we know the all-time favorite, kumbaya. (laughs) Some of you were moving as soon as I said kum to go get your firewood, right? And start that youth campfire because we've all sit around. Even though we had no idea what that meant, we would sing kumbaya. Most of us know where to sit. We have our seat in the church. We sit there week after week, month after month, year after year. It's amazing how easy it is for us to learn those dynamics. Thus, you see my children learning those dynamics at an early age and actually having their own worship service there in the house. But it's real easy for all of these things to become routine and for those things to become extremely cold, Right? That's what makes playing church so fun. Anyone can play church. Anne Ortland gives us these perceptive words. Now listen closely. When I was little, we used to play church. We'd get into rows, fight over who'd be the preacher, and vigorously lead him singing, and generally have a good carnal time. She goes on. The aggressive kids naturally wanted to be up front, directing and preaching. The quieter ones were content to sit and be entertained by the upfronters. Occasionally, we'd be mesmerized by a true sensationalistic crowd swear like the little girl who said, Boo! I'm the Holy Ghost. <laughs> but in general, the front runners were pretty good. As long as they could hold your attention, the audience did quite well. If they were not too good, eventually the kids just would drift off and play something else like jump rope or jumping jacks. But now that generation has grown up, but most of them haven't changed too much. They're still playing church. The line, they line up for the entertainment. It's, if it's good entertainment, the church will grow. If it's not good entertainment, eventually people would drift off to do something else. And she says, like kayaking or wife swapping. It's quiet in here. Let that sink into your mind for a moment. That's the problem. Playing church and being a false worshiper will get boring. And it's like Robbie Zacharias. I brought that quote to you last week. Folks, if you're bored with God, then heaven does not even have a better alternative for you. Unfortunately, the way church is today, and we're so seeker-sensitive, and, and we dumb our stuff down so that we think we can draw a crowd. Folks, when Jesus preached, people did not flock in. They clocked out. 
When Jesus preached the word, many began to follow, but after he continued to preach the word, and he quit doing the signs and wonders for their fancy, then they easily turned back and stopped following the Lord. You know, you can learn the routine, folks. Every Sunday, and when the excitement wears off, you're going to run off for some kind of more of a stimulating pursuit. Someone has truly said this, and listen to these words. In our generation, we worship our work. Let that sink in. We work at our play. Oh, is that so true? We worship our work, we work at our play, and then we play at our worship. No wonder we're unhappy. No wonder we're unfulfilled. No wonder life feels so empty. But there is a cure for it. It's to discover what God means by you being a true worshiper. Now here's the heart of biblical worship. It is a shift in focus from your concerns and your life to God's concerns and His life. That's what biblical worship is. That's what it is. It's a shift. It's a paradigm shift from it being all about you to it being all about the Lord. The ritual makes no difference. We could have done everything we've just done to this point, and even the preaching, and not worship God. You you do realize that. The ritual is not what's important. Last Lord's Day, we talked about how God is on the hunt. Aren't you thankful? To save and transform idolatrous, broken people and turn them into true worshipers. That's awesome. Because I was broken and idolatrous. Just like you were, right? And some of you, maybe you're in that position today, but I've got news for you. Jesus can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. He has the ability to do that. And so, again, He wants to transform you into what He created you to be. Yes, if you're saved, He saves you for heaven. But ultimately, he saved you to be a worshiper, to be a true worshiper. In Philippians 3.3, we're reminded that that's one of the distinctives of what it means to be a born-again believer, that you worship God in the Spirit. That's one of the distinctives, Philippians 3.3, of what it means to be saved. Now, I want to provide for you some definitions as we go along on our study on worship. And here's one of those definitions today by William Temple. It's one of my favorites. There it is. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of the conscience by His holiness. It is the nourishment of the mind with His truth. It's the purifying of imagination by His beauty. It's the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of will to His purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. What a definition. I wish that was original with me, but it wasn't. What a definition of worship. Do you recall our narrative in John? Now I want you to focus your mind on John chapter 4. Let me just give you a running commentary on what we learned last week. In verses 1 through 9, we see this incredible background of the text where Jesus crosses any and all racial, religious, and cultural barriers, social barriers, in order to save one lost woman. You know, you've heard the old song, when when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. Wrong. Before he made the foundations, before he laid the foundations of the earth, you, if you're saved, you were on his mind. Right? You were chosen in him. Before the foundation of the world, in case you can't figure that out, you wasn't around, right? 
And so it is with her. He, he must needs go through Samaria. No Jew would take that route because they had no dealings with the Samaritan. But Jesus crosses any and all racial, religious, social barriers for her to be saved. Do remember he's offering her water. And, and she's thinking, well, it's deep. You have no bucket. How can you get this water? She's perplexed. And he says, if you knew who I was, or if you know who I am, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. And she thinks of this. She wants it. I mean, who would not want the prospect of not having to go to a well and draw water out of a bucket and carry it back in the middle of the day like she was? But the fact is, Jesus in verses 13 through 14 will take this metaphor of water and he'll turn it into her greatest need and her greatest desire, that longing that you and I have inside of us. And what is that greatest need? It's redemption. Amen? That's the greatest blessing of all, to be redeemed, to be forgiven of your sins. And that's her need. And her supposition is this. This guy knows something about me. Because he knows I've had five husbands, and the one I'm living with now is not my husband. She was a perpetual fornicator, but also at that moment, she was living presently in adultery. And so she says, I perceive you are a prophet. That's kind of humorous, right? Because he's the God, infinite God, who knew everything about her. But she's thinking, supposition here, you've got to be a prophet. Because you know something about me. And we, we learned last week that there's a good possibility that this was just a tactic, uh, diversionary tactic to change the subject because she immediately jumps from her sin and says, well, what are we supposed to worship? But we also learned there's a good possibility that she was immediately convicted, perhaps, of the fact that she was a sinner. And in her mind, for a Samaritan or a Jew, the first thing you had to think about if you're a sinner is, I've got to make a sacrifice, and where am I going to give the offering? Is it going to be at Gerizim? Or is it going to be in Jerusalem? You tell us. And I think, I think she's becoming keenly aware of the fact that she is a sinner and she's separated from God and she needs a sacrifice. And the cure was standing right in front of her, the Lord Jesus. And so he turns that into the most relevant topic of her life and it's the most relevant topic in your life today and that is worship to the true and living God. Now, again, it's glorious how Jesus responds. The hour to come is what we would call the eschaton in the future. But he's also talking about the hour which is beginning right there for her in her life. It's not about Mount Gerizim. It's not about Jerusalem as the center of worship. It's not about sacred space or a mountain. It's about the here of worship. And I reminded you last week that what we're doing this morning is greater than anything any Old Testament saint could have ever done. Because the true temple... The Lord Jesus Christ, of which all the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of, has come down from heaven. Right? John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word... That's the eternal Logos. That's Jesus, the Son of God. And verse 14 of John 1 says, And the Word was made flesh, here's the Word, and dwelt. That's tabernacle language. He, he pitched His tent among His own people in your smelly, stinky backyard. Right? taking on your sin and mine, full identification. And that's what he did for us. So he's saying that this time is coming where it's not going to be about coming into a building like we're thinking about. Well, I'm going to worship, so I have to go down. And there is a sense of that. We'll learn it next week about corporate worship. 
But he's saying that you worship the Lord where you are. And then he makes this astounding statement. You Samaritans are wrong. Y'all listening? It's not correct today to say that you're wrong about who you worship, right? But Jesus doesn't mince any words. He says to the Samaritan woman, You are wrong in your worship. You are ignorant in your worship, right? Because salvation is of the Jews. Just get over it, folks. A Jew died on Calvary for your sins. Are you listening? We don't have a Jesus. We have the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus of the Bible was a full-blooded Jew, yet also fully God. But the fact of the matter is, he died for you. And Jesus is saying, look, salvation comes through a Jew, namely Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham. And without him, there is no salvation. Period. No other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. So, the first thing we learn is that now is the time for worship. This is not your point for your sermon, okay? I'm plowing the ground, all right? Now is the time for worship. Now, there's coming a day in the future, all Jews look for it, where we would worship the Lord in freedom, without sin, all those things. But in reality, the future had become present for her. Because that's why he says it like he says it. The hour is coming, but now is. For some of you, the now is, we pray is today. Where you will become a true worshiper. So Jesus Christ is a fulfillment. True temple has come down from heaven to establish that relationship. But here's the second thing and what I want to build the sermon off of. Not only is now the time to worship, but what does that hour bring? He will be seeking true worshipers, get it in your mind, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. For such of those who are the ones who worship the Lord. Now the phrase true worshipers, what does that imply? That you can be a false worshiper. Are y'all awake? It's kind of quiet in here. It, it implies something. If there is such a thing as an authentic or true worshiper, then the flip side of that is there, are, there is such a thing as a false worshiper. Thus, there is something we could call true worship. But the flip side of that is there are things that go on, even in the church building, that we would classify as false worship. Not, not me classifying because I don't know your heart. But God can definitely classify that. We have true worshipers that he is seeking. And this is, of course, true in our service today. We all heard the same songs. We all sang the same songs. We all heard the text. We're all listening to the sermon. Yet it's highly possible and even likely that we had true worshipers and we also had those who were not true worshipers, even though we were doing the same things. The true worshiper will worship what does the passage say? The Father. We're talking about the Father first, right? True worship, worship the Father. He will be the object of your worship. In order to be a true worshiper, you have to be in right relationship to the Father. And check this out. You can't be in right relationship with the Father unless you've gone through the Son. Right? There's no chance of anybody in the world. Everybody's wrong unless they've come to the Father through the Son. You've got to be bold enough. Not mean-spirited. But bold enough to stand and say there is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through me. So it doesn't matter how stunning the performance. It doesn't matter how orthodox the belief we may have. It doesn't even matter how eloquent the preaching is. If it's not done in the proper understanding of who God is and how you approach Him, then it's not worship. That's just plain and simple. This morning, understand something. We're also worshiping God 
in three persons. That's why we sing Blessed Trinity. We worship the Father through the Son and in the Holy Spirit of God. What you're doing today, if you really worship God, is called Trinitarian worship. We worship the Father, amen, through the Son and in the Spirit. And that leads me to the two issues of spirit and in truth. you got two simple points today. God seeks those who will worship in spirit, and God seeks those who will worship in truth. Let's talk about spirit first. Most of your translations, when you get to John chapter 4, verse 23, when it says spirit, most translations are going to have a small s. It's a lowercase s. And here's the question that strikes us. What is the text talking about? Is it talking about the Holy Spirit or the human spirit engaging the Lord? Well, how does the Greek text help us? It doesn't. You know why? Because the Greek is written in all caps. Seriously. So there, that doesn't help you there. What, what we have to do is think about Johannine theology or we think about John and we say, well, well, here's the thing about John. He had some ambiguities on purpose. He uses truth, spirit, wind. You know, you know John 3 when he says the wind blows where it wills and you're like, hmm, what does that mean? It's the same word of spirit and pneuma, same one. So he uses these term, terms interchangeably. So here's the deal. Context is king. What does he say before? What does he say after? Can we come away with an understanding of what he means by S? Or small case, lower case? Or are we talking about the Holy Spirit? But I think his context will help you because earlier on he says you must be born of the Spirit, right? So I think he's implying both here. I think the ambiguity is on purpose. It's to help us think about what he's saying. So to worship God ultimately is the opposite of what you do externally. If it's going to be in the Spirit, then obviously we're not talking about externals here. It can lead to that, but it has to start with what's on the inside. It has to do with everything within you. This includes your will, your mind, and your affections. So authentic worship means that everything in your being is employed in bringing worth that is due the name of our God. It is bringing that worth to Him. However... Worship in the Spirit, small s, is never totally of the human spirit alone. It is from a spirit that has been renewed, right? That has been empowered and one that has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. As John 3 teaches, you must be born of the Spirit of God. What does that mean for us today? What does that mean for me and you? I'm going to preach eventually on our own corporate worship and how to evaluate our own lives. But for this point, think about this. Outward performance may or may not be worship, folks. Just because you got up this morning and come to church doesn't mean you're worshiping God. So we have to ask ourselves, Spurgeon once said this, God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, then we have not sung at all. It's easy just to go through the motions. It's highly possible to sing and not worship. Sometimes we pray with our lips, but worship doesn't take place. Sometimes we give our finances, but worship doesn't take place. Outward performance does not authenticate true, real worship. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus is preaching and he's teaching and he's talking about fasting. He's talking about giving. He's talking about praying. And he says this, basically, if you pray to be heard, you have your reward already. 
no reward in heaven. You got man's applause. Good for you. That's where it ends. If you pray to be heard. Well, if you fast to be noticed, you got your reward already. And even Baptists, if you give, right? If you give to be noticed, give to be applauded, then you got your reward on earth already. It's the applause of man. But I'm telling you this, you better seek the treasures which are above. You better seek the Father's approval. So we know these things are true. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Authentic worship comes from the heart that's been redeemed by Christ. That's why when you sing a song like, we will remember. If some of you dead Baptists couldn't sing that, you're just... Do y'all know why it says... Do y'all know Baptists are going to go up first in the resurrection? Because it says the dead in Christ will rise first, right? Look, if you can't get excited about that song... Yeah, I told David up front, we got to have this song. We gotta, I told him before I ever moved here, we got to have this song. Because true worship is remembering... What the king did for you. That's what it's about. And what? The choir? Son, I like to have a running fit, but I've only been your pastor a little while. I tried to stay reserved. But that song is so amazing. And that's why you make it through the difficulties you make it through if you're a born-again child of God because your worship to God is not dependent on your circumstances. Let me give you an example of that. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in a Philippian jail. The magistrates had ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And we don't think about that. We think it just got slapped on their hand. No, folks, their flesh was hanging off their backs. And they're in this darkened cell with all the rodents and whatever else you could possibly imagine. It's, there's darkness in there. They're fastened in stocks. That means they have intense misery. Their backs are shredded. They're sitting in a dungeon. Their feet are in stocks. That means you can't even comfortably recline. They, they have a sleeplessness of insomnia, of pain. But can you imagine the conversations? Maybe they look at one another and Paul says, Silas, I don't know if I can take this anymore. And Silas says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to sing. You don't believe that, do you? I'm going to take your Bible, Acts chapter 16. Flip over there. I've got it marked in mine, so I'm going to beat you there. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. Listen. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Think about this. Their flesh is hanging off their backs. They've been beaten and they began to sing. And the prisoners were listening to them. Isn't that awesome? Man, they just had a gospel service right inside of a prison. And they started singing to the glory of God. Of course, we know the rest of the story that God brought deliverance. But just think about that for a moment. The Israelites said to the Lord, How can we sing the Lord's song when we're captive in a weary land? And God says, you'll sing my song because I'm present. And I am God no matter what land you're in. And you belong to me because you're my people. Just think about this for a moment. Despite the circumstances, there was such a worshipful spirit that it inexorably bubbled into life. And that's what you do when you worship God. It's not routine and happenstance and just coming in here and playing some music and going home. Folks, if that's all we're doing, we're in trouble. True worshipers worship the Lord in Spirit. I remember distinctly when I knew my dad was dying of cancer. I would make that drive from Athens, Georgia, from Augusta, Georgia, up to Athens on 78 Highway. And I had about two hours where I could reflect from the Lord. And I'm telling you, folks, what you do in those quiet moments is you allow the King to sing over you. You say, I don't understand. Zephaniah 317 says, Our God exalts in singing over 
us. So singing is near to the heart of God. And he worships in the inner man through singing. You have a song back to the Lord because of how good he's been to you. And it doesn't matter about your circumstances. Do I need to preach that over? Okay. In spirit. Now here's the second thing. God seeks those who worship him in truth. What is ultimately to worship in truth is to worship in conformity to the eternal word of God. Thus, ultimately, it is through the Son of God. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And the Logos was made flesh, right? So ultimately, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He's revealed Himself through His Word. Now think about this. Wrong thinking about God is in fact idolatry. If you're here this morning and you got wrong thoughts about God, then it's idolatry. Why is that the truth? Because you're assuming that God is something that He's not. Or you're assuming that God is other than He is. So how, crud- how critical is it for us to worship in the truth? Folks, if you're not worshiping in the truth as revealed to us by the Word of God about our God, then you're worshiping Him in an idolatrous way. And so well, that's kind of strong, preacher. Well, listen to Romans chapter 1. Verse 21, again, I'm going to beat you there. Listen to the word. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When you dumb God down or make Him less than He is, then you are an idolater. And so this is so important that we have truth. Wrong thinking about God is idolatry. Uh, What can we say about the 21st century? Pretty decadent, right? Pretty decadent view of the God that we belong to. Some of you may even see God as your cosmic force. Kind of like Thomas Jefferson, the deist, who ripped out all the miracles. I hate to tell you about one of your presidents like that. But that's what he did. He had the Jeffersonian Bible. He just snatched all the miracles out. You know why? Because he believed God was like Pele's watchmaker, right? God just wound this world up, let his hands off of it, and never has gotten involved with it again. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He believed that God just wound the world up, let it go, and doesn't have any kind of involvement in it whatsoever. Some of you may see him as a cosmic force. Some of you may see him as uh, you center on him as uh, a slot machine. I mean, isn't that what Christianity is all about? We just tell God what we want, and he gives us what we want, right? And instead of inserting coins into the slot machine, we're really good as Baptists to insert our favorite Bible verse so that God will give us what we want. Shame on us, right? We're good at proof texting and just sticking a verse in there, but worship is not left up to your own imagination. We must be people of the Word, folks. And if there's ever anything that comes out of me being your pastor, I want you to be people of the Word. That's what this is about. Not your feelings. God doesn't care about your feelings when it comes to the Word. And we're so guilty of interpreting the Word according to our feelings. But you need to let the Word interpret your feelings. Is everybody listening? We don't exegete the Bible with how we feel. We allow the Bible to exegete our feelings. And guess which one is wrong if one's wrong? It's sure not the Word. It's going to be your feelings. So understand, when we, when we deal with truth, 
We, this is not a mindless activity. We're not coming in here and just throwing off our mind and just relaxing because we worked all week and used our mind. And on Sunday, we're just going to turn our mind in neutral. Chris likes the term numb neutral. That's true. We just come in and we put ourselves in that kind of situation. But we need to use our minds when we worship. Have you ever thought about how important it is for us to hold contrasting views of God in our mind as we sing? How do we do that? Hold those things in our mind. He's transcendent. He's awesome. He's powerful. He's holy. He's majestic. That's one side you need to hold on to. But the other side of that is Jesus looked out over the crowd in Jerusalem and said, How often the Father wanted to draw you in like a mother hen does her chicks and spread his wings over you. Don't you love verses like those? He is a strong tower and the righteous run into him and they are safe. You need to be able to hold contrasting views of who God is in all of his holiness and glory, but yet he's willing to come down from heaven and save sinners like us. So worship is about that. And when that kind of worship and truth takes place, idolatrous hearts are purged. Our moral living is elevated. There are certain things that you know God doesn't stand for in the way that we live. Habakkuk says that God's eyes are so pure that he can't even look upon our sin. And we start to think about that when we're worshiping him in truth. Now, I'm going to say a few things and be done. Now, when we hear the term worship in spirit and in truth, it's easy to say, well, the charismatics do it this way. Right? And the Baptists do it this way. And we're prone to think, well, the charismatics are the ones who worship in the spirit. But those down at the Baptist church, just go down there. They're stuffy. Uh, they got all the forms right and the ritual right, but it's just kind of dead in there. Now, I don't think we're able to say either one of those, right? Not according to the Bible. If, if you're dead in your affections to God and you've got all the rituals down and you know all the theology, that's not good when you're dead in your affections for God. Theology about God ought to move the Spirit, right? It ought to move our affections when we think about our God. Why? Because what you think about God is the most important thing you will ever think about. It's how you worship Him. And think, please don't see it this way, that God is looking around in a narcissistic way and He's saying, oh please, somebody worship me. When it says the Father is seeking true worshipers, folks, He's not in heaven begging you to worship Him. He's not being a narcissist saying, I just wish somebody would please worship me. In spirit and in truth. Let me tell you why he's giving you that invitation. Because he's telling you the most important thing that can ever be told to you. That the only moral right thing to do is for you to worship the only one who is worthy to be worshipped. So he's telling you that for a purpose because he is infinitely glorious. He's worthy of worship. So he's willing and able and capable to say to you, I'm seeking true Worshippers, because he's worthy, and only he's the living water, right? Only he's the one who can satisfy. So he welcomes you before him. And we forget that sometimes. We think we're coming to the church and, and that God's the audience, and, and we're performing for him. Let me tell you something, folks. You're the audience. You're the audience, and he's the king, and he's on his throne, and you're supposed to be worshiping the king who is on his throne. That's what worship is. So when he is seeking worshipers, He's seeking people that can only be satisfied if they have Him through His Son. So if you're a believer, God saved you to worship in spirit and in truth. And yes, you ought to be moved in your affections for God. 
But you don't need to be a stinking thinker. Little thinkers are big stinkers. <laughs> Always remember that in church life. Little thinkers, people who don't think, are big stinkers. Now, I'm not hitting you if you say, well, mentality-wise, I can't. I'm not telling you that. I'm just saying that you ought to think about the God you belong to. Think about that. When you come in here, worship Him. Folks, I wish I could pour this into your mind. I hope you're getting it. But listen, if God says that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, it means that if you don't, you're not worshiping Him. You will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And you just can't throw everything out the window and think, well, I'm going to worship this way, I'm going to worship this way. No, you can't do that. You worship the way the Word of God tells us to do this. Our God sought you, and He saved you to be a worshiper. To God be the glory. Praise God for the sacrifice of His Son which washes all our sin away. And He brings you safely unto God. Your acceptability today is not based on your performance or who you are or what you've ever done. Your acceptability before the Father is totally based on what the Son did for you. And as long as the Father accepts the Son, He's going to accept you if you're in the Son. Aren't you thankful for that? And by the way, you can't lose that. God doesn't have an eraser. He didn't write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life and then go back and scratch it out when you lost your salvation. You're not saved by grace and kept by your performance. You're saved by grace and kept by grace. Doesn't give you an excuse to sin, however. If you've got an excuse to sin and think your eternal security is sure and you can do anything you want to, then you're lost as a ball in high grass. Right? If you're saved, you're not going to want to live contrary to the Word. Right? Now look, here's the first thing you need today. If you don't have him, you need the Messiah. You need the only Messiah. Remember, Jesus said, if you knew who it was who was offering you this drink, you would say to me, give me this drink. He's the Son of God. He's the only one that can give you life. And so the Bible, what you need today to become a true worshiper, first thing you need is you need the Messiah. You need to receive him like the woman did. He's the very God that holds the universe together. He's the God that became man for you, to ransom you from your sins and to be your Lord and Savior. You need to be born anew. Once this happens, you can become a worshiper in spirit and in truth. There's nothing more important than what you think about God and how you worship Him. How you worship God speaks louder of your understanding of Him than anything you could ever write down on a piece of paper or you could ever read on a creed. How you worship Him makes all the difference in the world. It's by spirit and in truth. Amen. To God be the glory. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, as we enter this invitational time, Lord, I'm asking You, Father, You're the Lord of glory and You know all things. Salvation is of You. But Lord, I'm sure there are people in this building that are not true worshipers. Lord, You're offering them living water, which is Yourself. Lord, we know what that is. It's a well springing up into eternal life. It's not physical water. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life. You yourself, you're the living water. And Lord, your word says, if, if we have you, we'll never thirst again. You'll satisfy us. Lord, the woman at the well was seeking satisfaction from all kinds of things, going from men to men, from marriage to marriage, divorce to divorce. But Lord, the living water was standing right in front of her. You offered her what would eternally satisfy her soul. And Lord, you offer that same gift of the gospel today. 
As many as received you, to them you gave the right to become children of God. Lord, I pray that you would touch a heart today. Uh, may they get up from their seat. May they trust you in their pew. Make it public, whatever it takes, Father, to turn from sin and self, self-centeredness and trust Jesus only for salvation, for forgiveness of sins. May they repent and turn to you and trust you only for salvation. God, for believers. Lord, we know that for the most part, the people who come to this church, and rightly so, ought to be the people who come together corporately to worship you. Father, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We would understand what it means for our affections to be moved by you. But not emotionalism. Yes, it's going to be emotional, but not emotionalism. Not driven by emotions, but driven by truth about you. We will remember, Lord, the day that you saved us. And we will give you praise. We will stop and shout, our God is good. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.